Hey coaches, I had to jump in here really quickly before we get to the intro because I just wanted to let you know that the sound quality on this ish, this episode came out a little wonky. I'm not sure what went on, but there was some kind of a little um, echo going on at some points throughout the episode recording, but it's such a good conversation that we have to share it with you. So I know it kind of sounds like little gremlins are trying to eat up my words or my computer, <laughs> but I promise you there are no gremlins. Um, I just, uh, I don't know, sometimes things happen happen and we don't always know why. So we're just going to accept it. And I hope that you can manage to listen to the conversation that I had with the wonderful Tamara Russell, because there's some good stuff in here. Happy coaching. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, welcome to episode 52 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I'm Chrissy Beltran, your host, and today we are talking to my friend Tamara Russell about equity lessons that she has learned and that we can learn from this virtual teaching experience. This year has been trying in education on all fronts, and many teachers have been teaching from home or teaching from school, but teaching children who are at home. And so this virtual teaching and learning experience has shed a light on a lot of things that maybe we were able to overlook a little bit more before, but it's brought to the surface so many issues in equity that I really wanted to talk to Tamara because this is right up her alley. This is what she's an expert about. So I really wanted to talk to her about this idea so we can get an understanding of what we should be walking away from this experience with and maybe what we can do about some of the things that we've learned over this last year. So I'm really excited to welcome Tamara. You may follow her online. Uh, Miss, Mrs. Russell's Room is her, um, her blog and her Instagram account. And if you haven't checked it out, I really encourage you that you do that because I learned so much just from following her every single day. So I am so excited to welcome Tamara to the podcast. Welcome, Tamara. Hey, friends. So glad to be here. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. I wanted to have you on for a while now, and I think this topic is going to be so important to people because it's it's timely. It's something we need to think about before we just pack up and move on. Um, so can you introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about who you are, how you ended up here, and what kind of work you're focusing on right now? Sure. So I'm a third grade teacher in Central Florida. I teach in the public school system down here and I'm national board certified. This is my 24th year in the classroom. Third grade is my favorite. So I'm in my passion grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I started teaching kind of by accident. Like I, my church had supported um, me a lot um, financially when I was at college, when I was an undergrad. And so I came out of undergrad with a theater degree and like did some theater part-time and then um, was kind of teaching to help out at the school, like a substitute. And then someone got sick and then I ended up taking over that class. And I want to say I was probably in that kind of posture for like two or three years. And I was like, you know what? I think I really do like teaching and I want to get better at it. So I t- started taking all the classes that I needed to supplement because I wasn't, didn't have an ed degree. And um, then after that, I got, you know, fully certified. I had moved down to Florida and teaching away um, in public school. And then I got my national boards. And so that's, I mean, it's been a zillion years, but yeah, that's how I got here. 
Um, so I focus on all subject, core subject areas, but I'm a, I mean, a, I feel like I'm a specialist at integration. So I'm really great at pulling like math and science and social studies into the literacy mm -hmm. block. So that's what I think I'm good at. That's beautiful. What an interesting story. Everybody always has such a different story about how they came to education. So that's a yeah. neat one. So what has your teaching looked like this year during this pandemic that we're in? Okay. Can I just say it's exhausting? Is that yeah, okay? You can say whatever you want. Cause everybody knows it's true. It is exhausting. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I'm face to face. So, you know, everybody, like you were just saying, everybody has a different um, story. Mm -hmm. And here in Florida, you know, our union really fought, you know, to keep us um, as safe as they possibly could. And eventually, you know, things got overturned and we ended up having to come back face to face. And of course, you know, there's such a scandal with um, whether or not all the reporting is true and all the contact tracing and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. So our case numbers are super, super high here in Florida. But um, in my district in particular, like at my, you know, uh, my county, Mm -hmm. we, I mean, we have like these flashes of it, you know, it'll be like one school is like really, really bad, but we don't close anything. Christy, we don't, nothing closes. Mm -hmm. We just keep going. Um, and nothing's been changed friend. Like they do everything the same as it was pre pandemic. So wow. all the same assessments, but then adding on to it. And then of course, adding on the additional dynamic of requiring students to demonstrate learning through technology pieces, which is, you know, very foreign to a lot of the kids and super foreign to the parents. So like, you know, instead of anything that we would have done like face to face is now like virtual and it's really taking a toll, I think on the parents, it's taking a toll on the teachers. Um, and then there's all, like I said, all these extra assessments because you want to see like, what was the COVID slide and like, mm -hmm. friend, it's, I, I can't even tell you. It's really, really, it's, it's one of the hardest things I think I've ever done in teaching. Wow. Yeah. So then you had, how long, you were virtual at the beginning of the year though, right? Or no, I've never no been. We, okay. No, we went out in March, like everybody else. Okay, we went out in March. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then when we started having a conversation about coming back, the governor was very adamant. Like mm -hmm. we are, we are going to open up schools for face-to-face -face instruction and yes, parents can have voice and choice, but then all of the mandates that have come since that has tried to force either parents to bring their kids back face-to-face -face or telling districts, you're not going to get money right, or right. as much money for students who are virtual versus students who are brick and mortar. Right, and right. so there's all of that shenaniganry going on. Um, it's just, it's really hard because there's a lot of parents that I think in their best judgment would keep their children home but are starting to feel like they don't have a choice anymore. Their kids are not um, achieving within the virtual platform. Mm -hmm. um, and because there's such a push for achievement, like that's right. the only thing that we matter. We don't care about your health and humanity. Mm -hmm. Parents don't want to fail their kids. So they're sending them back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and maybe I'm thinking about the spring. That's what I was remembering whenever you were, you know, teaching in a virtual mode, <clears throat> but yes, I, but, that's the only time I did it mm -hmm. was um, from March until the end of the school year. And then in August I was back face to face. Back classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, we've seen that a lot in Texas as well. And I live in an area, I don't really know how the schools in the area have managed to do it, but I know a lot of schools across Texas have, because they're basing it on data about who comes back and who, who doesn't, but that's individual right. districts. There's no, the guidelines from the state are very 
wishy-washy. And I think that's so that they can manipulate it to be whatever they want. You got and, it. Uh, yeah. So they're, they are absolutely threatening schools with, um, you know, you have to make up the days. You only count as a half day if it's virtual learning. And I mean, so a lot of districts have struggled with this. Some, so we're all over the place and across the state. Some have been back for months. Some have been have not come back yet. We, I have, there are districts in my area that um, kids are barely coming back this week. Um, this is the first time. Well, and this is actually in, in February that we're recording this. So this is, I mean, it's just, the state has been all over the place, but absolutely when it's tied to money, that creates a lot of decisions that would not be what you would make if you had all the choices. All right. The options. Right. Um, and then the message does get sent to parents. We really need your kids here, you know, by administrators because the administrators mm -hmm. are desperate to put, you know, kids in seats. And it's just a, just a bad mix. It's a bad, bad mix. And they don't have choices. You know what I mean? Like administrators have bosses too, that are like, listen, right. the budget shortfall is going to be huge. If we don't get these kids back, you you know, right. and it, it just feels like such manipulation. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. parents know the administrators, they know the coaches. These are the people who are calling them. It's not like some government entity that they don't, they don't know and they don't trust. And so, you know, they literally have to convince parents to bring their kids back. It, it's just sad. The whole yeah. thing. The whole thing is really sad. I think we're going to look back on this season mm -hmm. and know that um, just the whole of education could have been done so much differently. The, you know, hindsight is 2020, Chrissy. And I yeah. think when we look back on this. Yeah, I can see that. Do you, do you think that it's about like, that we're just like staying afloat so we're not thinking? Like whenever you're in that mode where you don't think because you're just trying to Stay, like every day is a new set of challenges. So we're just kind of like, okay, well, what do we need to do today? Yes. I think that that's, that's a surviving mm -hmm. mechanism that a lot of us are using in the classroom right now. Like yeah. what, you know, I mean, executive functioning is not really great. Right. right. So it's like, I have a million sticky notes everywhere. Like I'll, I'll show you my sticky note. Do you see my sticky notes? Oh, I, I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I have to remind myself and remind myself and remind myself mm -hmm. multiple times of things because I just can't, I cannot focus. It's so many things. And just to like, just to focus on the basics, the most basic things in the classroom. Right. What's, um, essential? Yeah. what's essential? What is absolutely essential? Because the, the, the ways in which I would spend my energy, like I'll tell you one thing is like, I never realized how difficult Although I tried to practice with wearing a mask before I came to school, mm -hmm. just figuring out which kind of a mask would be on my face and not upset me all day, trying to talk to kids, like I'm a very passionate, expressive teacher. Right. So trying to teacher. <laughs> yes, right. And so I'm reading these stories with like three and four different accents and I'm like mm -hmm. getting loud and soft and all this. And you do that in a space where you're wearing a mask that's stifling you. And like, I lose my breath a lot. Uh -huh. um, and it's very, like, it can be very stressful, you know, for me. Um, and I think too, like, I say this all the time. I feel like, you know, I, I live in the area where I teach. Like if I had a child, my child would be going to my school. Right. And I say all the time, I feel like 15 years from now, I'm going to see a kid in the Publix and they're going to be like, Mrs. Russell, do you remember when you had me during the pandemic? And I'm going to be like, sweetie, can you cover half your face? So I can, so I can just look at you and see if I can recognize you. I mean, literally it's so hard. Like I, I don't recognize all of my kids without their masks on. Mm -hmm. 
It's so sad, Christine. It's so sad. Yeah, I can, I can see that even it it feels like a, a, like a weird thing to be so concerned about, but that's their face, you know, it's their face. Yeah. When you teach elementary, it's different. Maybe Mm -hmm. the middle and high school teachers are like, look, I wish they would wear those gaiters over their entire head. (laughs) When they're in elementary, like their little faces change so much. They gain teeth, they lose teeth. And like, I don't know. I miss their faces. I miss their expressions when they're confused or when they're excited and when they're happy, like, I'm not getting all of that. And I know that's one thing for me. I feel like I am jealous of my uh, peers who do virtual because I'm like, you do see them, you know what I mean? And you see their faces and you get to talk to them, the ones that, you know, want to, to share their faces, but it just, I, I miss that. Mm-hmm. I miss the normalcy of just seeing kids smile, with their little gap tooth grins and whatnot. Right. Yeah. So what are some of the shifts that you've had to make to respond to this new mode of teaching? Cause that's, there are a lot of changes I'm sure that you've had to think about. You talked about focusing on the essentials, um, but what does that look like? What are you doing that is very different than what you would have done before? Oh, less is more. So, so oh. much less. Like I, you just can't do all of the things I used to have centers, for example, where like groups of students were doing all kinds of things and touching things and playing things to understand. We can't do all of that right now. I I can't manage the upkeep of cleaning those things in between usage. So like, what does it look like to simplify and streamline those things? Can I have some of the students doing like a computer-based program, maybe other students doing a worksheet? Like, and no, is that what I would normally do? No, but it's easy for me to figure out and work on. I do have some kinds of hands-on things that I do, but it's usually something that's like wipe off, you know, that I can very easily wipe off at the end of the day and clean up for kids. So that's one thing is like, I'm doing a lot less. Like I try to have the students grade things sometimes when I can, right? Because that creates more time for me. Um, I'm coming home much earlier. Like I'm much, much better about coming home by like four o'clock now. Um, but I honestly can't keep my eyes open past, I want to say like nine o'clock, Chrissy, I can't keep my eyes open. I just, I need to be home and I need to unpack and I need to unwind. So that's some of the stuff that I'm doing, um, for myself. Um, but yeah, definitely in the classroom, just a lot less, like what is the simplest way Tamara for you to do that? What is the easiest way for you to do those things? I I can't do things anymore with like five and six and seven different ways to approach the same thing. I don't have the energy. So I really love the work that you share online and it's a lot of it, a lot of it over the last few years. Yeah. It's wonderful has been about equity. So could you define equity for us? So we kind of have an idea of what that looks like. Um, I think equity is, it's a journey. It's not, you know, like a destination, but for me in the context of my class, it looks like giving each kid what they need in order to be successful, the most successful that they can be in my classroom. And so that's going to look like um, in small ways, for example, this year, it's looked like teaching kids how to use voice over text. So for my students, I'm an ESC inclusion teacher. um, And so for my students who struggle to, um, get their words written down, you know, Um, an impediment to them writing their authentic thoughts is spelling. So when they use voice voice over text, they're able to share their thinking and um, 
they're able to get it down on paper, just like all the other kids. So that's a way that I can make um, things be more equitable for students. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of how I would describe equity. I mean, it's not like a really, it's not like a really fancy thing, but I want to make sure that all of my students get what they need as best as I am able to, to get what they need in order for them to be their best self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a perfect definition because it's relevant all the time. Mm-hmm. Because um, I used to have, I always had students in my classroom with special needs as well. And, you know, I'd have, I had one year, a, a student with macular degeneration and she had a special mm-hmm. screen, you know, I mean, like different readers and lenses and all kinds of tools. And kids used to say like, why, well, why is she using this? And, and I'd say, everybody gets what they need. If you needed that, you would get it, but you don't need it. So you get what you need to be able to do your best here. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. I also think that's very, kids can understand that, you know, if we frame it that way too, it's not about being fair. Everybody isn't, I don't, I wear glasses. If you don't need glasses, I'm not going to put glasses on you because I need them. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody gets what they need. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really very user-friendly definition. (laughs) So what can you tell us about some of the biggest lessons that we've learned about equity that have been brought to the forefront with virtual teaching? Maybe things that um, that we're, we're already were in place, but maybe we didn't, we weren't as aware of them. I think it's been exposed that the way we used to do teaching before virtual teaching was really problematic. Mm-hmm. Like we before wasn't that great. Like a lot of us will say, you know, I just wish it were normal. But when you think about what normal represents um, is a lot of inequity for kids, a lot of underfunded um, public schools, a lot of under-resourced public schools. That's what it used to be before the pandemic. Then now in the pandemic, we still have woefully unprepared and underfunded schools, right? So across the country, um, you have schools that don't have enough personnel. Like there have been multiple reports of like schools that didn't have enough substitutes. So they had to put kids in like a gymnasium to do their learning, right? You have parents who are in virtual instruction who live in remote and rural areas who can't get a hotspot, right? So they can't get internet access for their students. Also, when we think in terms of like the learning that goes on, um, one of the things I've been talking a lot with my colleagues about, students, most students do not, especially at the age level that I teach, which is different than middle and high school, but like most students aren't used to sharing deep critical thought through technology. They're not. So a lot of us as teachers, what we've done when they said, we want you to start using the technology in class. We'll take a standard third grade activity that's, you know, rigorous and based on the standards, right? And we'll just transfer that into an online platform. But if you talk to teachers who teach virtually for a living, they will all tell you that's not what they do. It's much, much less. So whereas I might have a student write, you know, five different responses on one sheet of paper, that doesn't necessarily transfer to an online platform for kids. They may need me to give them one question where they have to have like two things that they're responding to, but it's one question to answer, right? It's less, it's literally less work, right? but it makes more sense for their brains at this time. That's learning that teachers are doing right now, right? And so we, none of us are gonna be doing this exactly perfect, right? So we're all trying to figure this out. And on top of it, kids are still being assessed. Teachers are still having walkthroughs. Like 
the, the amount, the sheer volume of new knowledge that's being taken in by educators across the country and by students definitely indicates we, the, this virtual teaching environment is woefully inequitable. And we're being evaluated by teachers, by principals or coaches or district leadership that none of them have ever taught in a pandemic. None of them have had to do an entire day's worth of lessons in a mask and a face shield. You know what I mean? Like, so these are all the things that we're seeing in this, I think in this environment that just hurts so badly because in, in March and April, Christy, we were telling them this. Teachers like yourself who are now out of the classroom were saying, have you guys thought about this? Have you thought about this? And you know what they told us? They said, sit down and hush. We will get, we got you. We'll take care of it. Why y'all acting crazy? You remember March and April? They thought we were crazy. And then we came back to these schools, Chrissy, and they didn't have the PPE and they didn't have the personnel and they were tight fisted with that money. They didn't want to give schools money. And here we are. And it's now worse. The inequity is worse than it was before. Way worse. More expectation, much less funding. I think those are really good points because it's not just equity about how kids are being educated, like as as far as instruction or lessons or what's happening in each classroom, that is one layer. And then the other layer is like the systemic issues about how we fund schools and how we um, determine where that funding goes once we get it and who has the voice in those conversations and who has the voice in, you know, at at various levels, like, so at, at the campus, who makes decisions in the classroom, who makes decisions at the district, at the state, who makes decisions. And that's yeah, get there's so many, levels. exactly. There's so many levels of it. And what's exciting to me is I think teachers are starting to become more activated in that. They're mm-hmm. starting to think about those layers themselves and they're starting to self-advocate. They're starting to say, this is where the buck stops. Like I really thought a year ago, I was tired of certain things in public education. Oh no, I am way tired of this. <laughs> And so now I'm going to join my union and now I'm going to get some stuff done, right? Because they see if we just continue to stay silent and continue to put more of ourselves into these classroom spaces without demanding reciprocity, like they'll just keep taking, they'll just keep taking. I mean, the level of consumerism of teachers in America is at its like its peak. It's just, it's at peak level. It's unbelievable of what they expect us to continue to do. Mm-hmm. Like, just keep going, just keep going. Like everything's on fire, you know, but just keep going. Right. This is not normal. No, it's not normal. It's um, not normal. It's not normal. And I feel like in a lot of professions, it's clear that it's not normal. And in, in education, it has been accepted as normal for a long mm-hmm. time um, that decisions get made by people who have maybe the least experience in what actually those decisions look like when they play out. Um, the cognitive dissonance friend it's uh, ridiculous yeah yeah and that's that's why that's why we see these issues that's why we see it happening um I feel like so many of these things were easy for people to ignore. Like you mentioned before, if you're paying attention, there may have been things that you were already frustrated with, but now we can no longer, it's really (laughs) hard to ignore them. Right. Exactly. Um, Why was it easy for people to ignore them before? Like I'm thinking about 
what, what you mentioned about in rural communities, they don't have access, you know, you're absolutely right um, to lots of times to internet is not something that's just on, not on the table. It's just not available. Right. And um, it's not something that you like, you can just problem solve through at home, you know? So when, whenever we are talking about technology being such an essential part of preparation for the world, this is the world we live in now, and those communities don't have that access, so they don't have kids who have that access, so then they're not able to provide kids with that same equitable you know, instruction that they're getting in other places. Right. Why was that okay to ignore? Does that make sense? Why, why were we overlooking those things until all of a sudden kids had to do all their learning online and people were literally sending packets, which you don't learn from a packet. Um, right. that, that was, I know that was out of desperation from the individual schools, right? They were like, well, what mm-hmm. else do we do? We're going to send this, at least it's something for them to do. I can't, right. I, what else can we do? But I mean, what, how were we overlooking those things for so long? Why was it easy to do that? I will tell you that it's, those are things that teachers have always said. Mm-hmm. Teachers have been saying these things. There's that meme out there about like the government funded classroom versus versus yes. the teacher created classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Teachers have been saying these things, but systematically, this is always going to be reduced to money, right? Mm-hmm. And if the system recognizes that it's cheaper for them to continue to allow teachers to to feel this kind of faux sense of autonomy, like, yeah, we trust you, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So teachers are creating their own materials and teachers are funding their own classrooms and teachers are buying their own materials. And when, when teachers are seeing problems in the classroom, they're solving it by spending their own money to get whatever their students need because it's not being given to them because we've been saying we needed it. And when we ask for things, we're told, oh, that's not in our budget. Oh, that's not what we do here. Oh, there's a whole process, you know, before that student is ever going to get those kinds of services. And you just need to press on. You just need to keep trying, trying different things, RTI, MTSS, even though you know the student needs something different. We have been saying these things. The system benefits from this continual systematic oppression of a female-driven workforce. The the patriarchal notions, right? You have, what, 80% of women in this profession like are in the classroom teaching, 80%, and then it's a flip-flop of who's superintendent and who's district, right? So, like, it's a lot of men in those positions. So we don't even look at those types of systematic inequities. Like, the idea that you could just tell people on TV, you know, as we've watched some of these talk shows talking about teachers, the way in which teachers are talking, just go back to work. Just go back to work. What do you mean just go back? Who talks to anybody? Do you see what I'm saying? Like when we start to really think about these circumstances, we're being ignored intentionally. I think as a, as a collective, teachers as a collective are being ignored because we're women. And because we should just care, and because when you're a woman, you're expected to do whatever these womanly things are, such as sacrifice at your sacrifice yourself at a high level till you've given of yourself till there's nothing left of you, right? Mm-hmm. That nurturing part of us as teachers, they appeal to that part, like they, they, the saviorism aspects of teaching, right? Um, and it's a siren's call for a lot of teachers. And so here we find ourselves. I don't, I don't think it's that nobody's been saying these things. I believe people have been saying it. I believe that the powers that be benefit 
from pretending like this is the first time they knew that this happened. It's been said forever. That's very true. I just don't care. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, um, <clears throat> I've had a real issue with that. And I was just having a conversation about that with somebody else the other day about how, what is the deal whenever I know very, very, very well qualified women who have applied for administrative positions. And I do see people who maybe are not as qualified, um, but they are men and they get by on more like the personality. Um, it's what I see. So I see this happen regularly and that is, you know, obviously that's a real issue, um, because we do that. They are the ones who make decisions and it can be difficult to have yourself to get, to be heard, to be heard on a wide scale. Um, whenever that is kind of what's, what's normal, it's, it's like, okay, well, we've already decided who we listen to and it's not you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yep, a real that's, we, that's where we are in education. And I think now teachers are starting to figure it out. Like it's really not going to change mm-hmm. unless we change it, unless we say we really have had enough. And I think the postmortem on pandemic pedagogy and teaching during this season, we haven't hit bottom, Chrissy. We have not hit bottom. Wait until the fall. That's when you're going to really be able to see the losses of classroom teachers, the losses of veteran leadership across the country. The the windfall of teachers coming out of the classroom is going to be huge. And I don't know that we will be able to recoup those losses. You know, it's, it's just, we don't have enough. We as a teaching workforce too, sometimes have shot ourselves in the foot, like the next generation of people to come in, to take our places, we're not repopulating ourselves, right? So we should be, when we leave, there should be two more people coming into this profession, right? Because we're doing all this work, right? As teachers, um, coaches and uh, power professionals and all of this, two more people should be coming in for me when I leave. That's not happening because we don't have teachers, young people going into education preparatory programs. Mm-hmm. We just don't. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of frustration on our part, you know, and, and yes, being transparent about the issues with the craft, but like at the same time, it's not the kind of profession that most people want to go into. I mean, I know teachers who tell their own kids don't grow up and be a teacher. I have heard that too. It's really sad. Lays me. Like I would be so honored if I had a child and they wanted to be a teacher, even, even in the middle of this. Yes. Even in the middle of this. Right. I mean, this is hard. It's, it's really hard and I'm really, really tired, but like I know that what I do matters. Mm-hmm. Like I know that I'm pouring into the next generation of kids and that's exciting to me, whether I would be doing that virtually or face-to-face, like that's leaving a legacy is hugely important to me. And I, I feel like that's what I get to do as a teacher. So I'm willing to continue to try to do it. Um, and prayerfully, I stay safe and, you know, uh, prayerfully I, I am well and healthy and whole and my students and their families are as well. But you know, it is what it is. The season is what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just the reality right now. So what questions could school leaders be asking themselves about equity? How do we keep this in the front of our minds to make sure that we're really addressing this as we're making decisions, you know, at a, at a school or district level? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting that you would ask me that because my district is actually just now kind of emerging into equity work. And so it's very interesting to see because I've never experienced this before, you know, where to kind of watch the birth of a work within the context of a district. And so 
it's been very interesting to see how they they do that. One of the things I know that I have said um, when I've had the opportunity to talk to district leadership is that I, I'm very passionate about um, the cause and effect aspect of um, equity conversations, right? So if we're going to talk about the effects, and a lot of times they want to lead with data, and I understand initially that's going to be really important, especially when you're looking to get buy-in, maybe from people who are not as familiar or comfortable with talking about disparities based off of like gender or race or equity, things of that nature, or gender, race, um, ethnicity, things of that nature. So for me, I feel like one of the big things is you got to notice and name these problematic structural systems, right? You've got to be okay with saying, you know, we have problems with race and bias. Mm-hmm. What types of bias? What what types of bias are we seeing here? What What is this a hallmark of, right? We've got to be okay with having conversations around things that are difficult. And in my district, we have a lot of people who are really underprepared for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be, I'm sure going forward, quite a bit of pushback. And I think my district is reacting to that like prematurely, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're preemptively like, okay, we know we're going to say these things and these people are going to lose their cool. And so sometimes they don't say as much as I wish they would. Like, I don't, I think they, they should go further in their work. Mm-hmm. And they're a little reticent to do that because of the type of district that I live in. Um, so I would like to see noticing and naming, but I'd also like to see district leadership talk about, like, who are you learning from? Where, where are you getting your information from? Who's leading you? Um, it's really difficult to have conversations for me anyway, as a black woman in a space with a lot of white folks, when I don't know who they're learning from. Mm. Like I've been doing, I've been having conversations about equity for probably the last, I want to say 10 or 12 years in my professional career, but I've navigated spaces as a black person my entire life. So there's always things that I have instinctively recognized about what it looks like to be living within black personhood in a space. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by nature, that's going to put me ahead on those conversations, right? Because I've already been thinking about it. I was young and I was thinking about it. Now I just have the language. I've acquired language to go with the circumstances that I lived with. That's what's different for me. So then I come into this work, let's say, for example, in my district, and now I'm partnering up with people who are leaders in my district who have never had these conversations, but I'm their subordinate. That's a really difficult position to be in because they think we're the same. We're not the same (laughs) because you haven't been doing any of this. And I've been having these conversations for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I would love to know from district leadership, who are you learning from? Who, who's giving you the ideas that you think are best for this space and this group of learners? Who are you learning from? There's so many consultants out there, Chrissy, that do this kind of work professionally. Who are you learning from, you know? And, and who's guiding that thinking? Because if I hear names of people that I know and respect and I'm like, oh yeah, those people are on it and you're getting this from them. Now, all of a sudden I feel like maybe we are closer to each other, right? In theory, that's, that's what I'm thinking anyway. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Like it's like a shared understanding of the issue. And so you're saying right. like, where, where are you getting your information from? Because if you're only taking information from lived experience and your lived experience is of a white person, then is that, then, then you probably, you don't have the same perspective. And so whatever you're bringing to the table may not really be helpful and identify or as helpful in identifying those issues of equity. If you are right. learning from different perspectives and their quality sources, then you can be bringing in a lot more than if you just said, well, I've never seen this happen myself. Well, you know, it's, it, yeah, that's, there are reasons for that. <laughs> that's right. The inequity, that's the issue. Um, so, so yeah, we want to make sure that we are learning and that that also demonstrates that that learning is a priority for that individual. I think mm -hmm. um, that they have made a point to seek out the information and not just kind of um, wait until an issue arises and then they respond to it. That buy-in piece is so important because one of the things I find a lot of times when I talk to white educators through like my Instagram platform, they'll ask a lot about pushback. I get lots of questions about pushback. Mm. And I feel like when I get those questions, I, there's a lot of reticence to put skin in the game, particularly from white teachers. And they'll cite things like, well, the rules at my school, or, you know, I'm going to get in trouble for this, this, and this. And I, there's a, there's a side of me that understands that. But then there's another side of me that says, okay, so where are you putting skin in the game? Where are you? And so when we think in terms of district leadership to the point that you were making before, like when you lead, when you lead by telling me who you're learning from and you're putting yourself out there and maybe, maybe I might think you're doing too much. I might think you're not doing enough, but I might actually think as, as a black woman, I might think you're doing too much at this stage, right? You are putting skin in the game. And that's something for me that I want to see, particularly from, you know, white district leadership. Y'all need to put some skin in the game. Talk about where you're learning and be okay with having that pushback of, mm, maybe that's not enough or mm, maybe that's too much. Be okay with it. Be okay with that pushback. That I don't see happening very much. And that's why I think there's so, the, the, March towards justice is so much slower because a lot of our district leaders are just paralyzed by the thought that maybe somebody won't like what they were saying. They don't necessarily have evidence, you know, it's maybe I'm going to get pushed back. So therefore we need to take this instead of in two steps, we're going to take it in 20. Mm -hmm. Think about how many kids get left behind in that time. Yeah. yeah. Because we, we haven't acted on helping to build capacity in teachers to have difficult conversations or to, you know, to work with students on, on parts of history that might be problematic, right? We haven't gotten down to it. We're spending all this time, all these think bubbles are occurring like on Twitter with leadership. And it's like, does this ever get to a regular teacher in the middle of like, you know, Duluth, Minnesota? And like, they just teach first grade and this is their third year, but you know, they went to college and they learned a couple things about equity and then maybe they follow Lanisha and Naomi and they want to start implementing something, but they don't have anybody on the ground. Mm -hmm. They don't have anybody on the ground. Like, because it never got from let's, you know, throw these truth grenades on Twitter, district heads, right. And education influencers. It never went from there to the actual 25 year old in a class of 20, you know, first graders in Duluth. It never got there. That's the problem. We've got to make it go from that big top down, top thing, 
down to the people who are actually touching and impressing themselves onto the lives of children. Mm -hmm. Got to get down there. We got to get lower. Is it getting there? I don't know that it's getting there in all circumstances. It's not. Um, I think there are a lot of places that can live, or a lot of teachers and schools and you know communities that can kind of live in a bubble of of um, comfort, you know, of whatever has been in place and always done, and and you get used to like like not observing certain things because that's standard, and it's also easy sometimes to pass blame on parents for issues that are really systemic issues, and so yeah, I feel like absolutely there are probably there are individuals who undertake the work and there are schools that do and districts that do, but, but yeah, there's a, there are a lot of, of schools that this has not even, but these conversations have not happened at all. And it does take somebody in a leadership position to initiate that. Um, so what can actually be done at a school level to address some of these, these issues that we're seeing? One of the things that like my district um, is trying to do now is um, equity commissions. Um, equity committees. So at my school, um, my district is following the work of Dr. Anthony Muhammad. And so um, one of the things that he suggests that teachers do is disaggregate data and um, build equity commissions of, um, you know, different stakeholders within the context of the school. So teachers, coaches, principals, staff, things of that nature, you know, even some parents um, and community stakeholders, right? And so you sit down and you kind of have conversations with this, you know, diverse group of people. And when we say diverse, you know, it's in all areas, it's um, racial, socioeconomic, all of that, you know, you want to put, you want to have this really great group of people to have these conversations. And then you take the learning from that group and you spread it out to the teachers in the school. I mean, that's, that's the ideal. That's the goal. Um, But I think, like I said, it's, moving things from the theory and the broad conversations that leadership, you know, across, let's say our state, for example, is having and bringing that down into a district and then filtering that through, I mean, I think my school district has like 65 schools, you know, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a pretty big district. Uh, <clears throat> I think we have 4,000 teachers and like almost 50,000 students, like to, to filter that to every single classroom that's a big lift. Um, so equity teams can help that in a school site, you know, um, to have those kind of micro conversations um, going on. So that's what my district is trying to do. And you feel like that would be a good, that's a good place to start. I think in our case, it's a good place to start. I think the concern that sometimes, like I've said before, that I have about things like that is who's leading those committees and who are you learning from? Mm-hmm. How are those committees picked? you know, from one school site to another, if you have a principal who's really adept at those conversations and has been doing that type of work in other spaces, and then they're bringing that information to their school, that equity committee is probably pretty healthy um, and pretty successful at disseminating information. But then you're going to have other schools where those principals capacity has not been built in them. So they're not prepared to do that work. So then that entire school site, basically you take them off the grid because nothing's going to happen at that school site. You know, they're going to pick the wrong people for the equity team. As soon as one person says something that somebody doesn't like, then nobody's having a conversation anymore. And like, those are the kinds of things that I feel like might happen in my district, because I think there are some principals with a great deal of capacity and then others who somebody still needs to pour into them and help them to be more comfortable. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, that, that takes time. Those are, um, I call that professional intimacy. Like you have to, this type of work is only ever really successful. I think in close quarters, it's not like truth grenades from afar. Like, let me make you feel bad for being a white person or, um, you know, a white appearing person of color, like boom, 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 boom. No, it's from being, you know, in the same pod with you and we talk or we work at the same school and you get a chance to come watch me teach or I get a chance to go into your room and like observe what you're doing and be a part of conversations that you're having. That's when that work is really like it can really, really grow well um, in that kind of an intimate scenario. So hopefully with this type of work, this, this equity coalition, my prayer is that in the schools where there's a lot of capacity built by the leadership, that, that those conversations will spread out and it'll be part of the you know, community at the school. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yes, cross your fingers. So what are some larger systemic changes that you think are important to happen in the near future in schools in general? Um, I think you're going to see from teachers across the country an increased push on a decrease in testing. Again, it's not a lack of accountability. I don't know any teachers that believe that it's not important to make sure that kids are learning what we say that they're learning. The way that we do testing though, Christine, is detrimental to the mental health and wellness of not only teachers, but students as well. Um, And we're seeing that I think too, again, in the, you know, the future, when we look at this season of how many students have come through this kind of no child left behind and ESSA framework, we're going to see that there are a lot of young people who are self-injuring um, and ultimately taking their lives because their entire identity is wrapped up in being smart and being um, being able to take these tests and do these tests. And when they can't prove themselves in that way, they're lost. Like, I feel like we're doing harm to kids. One of the biggest things I think that's going to change is testing. And, and we can see that it's been done. Bettina Love said this in a podcast I watched her in a while back, but she, like, they got rid of testing with the stroke of a pen when this pandemic hit, Chrissy. Mm-hmm. They can do it again. They told yeah. us they couldn't. You remember back in the day, they were like, oh no, you have to do these tests. These, this has to be done. All of a sudden there was an itty bitty pandemic and we got rid of tests. All of a sudden, all the technology, Chrissy, that teachers have been asking for for years, can I get, can we be one-to-one? Oh, we ain't got money for that. We ain't got money. We ain't got, Chrissy, every kid has a computer now. Mm-hmm. Where'd the money come from, Chrissy? Mm-hmm. It's priorities. It's priorities. Like all of these things that for years we had been told mm-hmm. we could not get, we got. In, in Florida in third grade, you can be retained if you fail FSA. You know what happened mm-hmm. last, last uh, May? They said no kid is going to get retained in third grade this year unless their parent requests it. No kid. Boop, just like that. They just... It just disappeared, Christy. How does it happen that you told us before it would never change? It's not possible. And now all of a sudden, boop, we already know what research tells us about retention anyway, not being really productive for kids and not helping graduation rate. But we are gangbusters about retention in Florida in third grade. And in one stroke, it was over. I didn't even have to think about it. I could tell every single one of my kids' parents, you know what? We're going to push towards the end. We're going to try to figure this out. But they are moving on. And 
here are the areas of deficiency that your child has. Here are the ways in which I'm, I'm helping. Please pass this on to the next teacher. You know, here's the MTSS process they're in. These are the kinds of activities I'm working on with them. Here's the graph. Go forward. Like, these are the systemic issues that we have in education that we could just get rid of. The way that we do it doesn't have to be done that way. The pandemic taught us this. It taught us that none of this has to be this way. None of it. It's a really good point. Um, yeah, like in Texas, for example, last year, yeah, they canceled testing. This year, they are saying everyone has to come in to test. But they are saying that it's not going to, there's no negative consequence for it, but for one for failing and for another for not showing up. But the culture of testing is so ingrained. So I feel like principals are still going to tell kids they have to come to school. They're not, they're going to make it pretty clear that that's important to them to come to school was my guess. Um, I'd be surprised if, if a principal said, you know what, come if you, if that's important to you. And if it's not, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't anticipate hearing that. So, so yeah, it's, it's going to be. And guaranteed if parents start to, if there starts to be a rumble across Texas, that parents are going to not send their kids because they don't feel like that's safe. Yep. They will find a way to attach dollars to every bottom that's in a seat for those tests. And they will tell those principals, we will keep money from your school right. if you don't have 90%, 95% attendance at this testing. I mean, that's what they usually do. If you don't have a certain percentage, you know, in, in t- testing on testing day, then you get in trouble and you lose your money. Yep. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. It's all about the dollars. It's all about, Chrissy, when you look at it, it's so much about that mm-hmm. and not looking at the humanity of the folks who are involved in the work, the, from the teachers to the bus drivers, to the paraprofessionals, to the folks in the cafeteria, to the children, to their families, to the principals. It, n- the humanity of folks is not as important as the dollar. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's all of this goes back to that. And we need a hard reset in education I don't know entirely what the answers would be all the time, but I can tell you that the pandemic, like I said before, has taught us that we could start with a clean slate tomorrow if we wanted to. We could do whatever we wanted as a country. We could just say, we have learned these tough lessons. And from this point forward, we're going to change it because the pandemic showed us that everything, so many of the things that teachers were saying they needed that they couldn't get, we got. Things were canceled or things were given to it. Like, it happened. So why can't we just reimagine it? Why are we still trying to use the same broken system now with what we have going on? Mm-hmm. Because people have to get paid because testing companies have to get paid and, um, you know, Schools want money, so they have to bring students back into the seats, whether or not their parents want them there, because the state says they have to. Like the all of these things are related to money. Yeah, it is. It is. So if coaches only walk away with one idea from this episode, what do you think that it should be? Find a way to help your teachers do less. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's gonna be hard for coaches because there's just a lot. There's just a lot, a lot is being asked of coaches. And my coaches at my school are subbing. (laughs) Like when we don't get subs, our coaches are subbing and they're still expected to coach. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're still expected to coach as well. It's, it's a really difficult time. But as many things as you can lobby administration to say no to, help them say no. No, no, Mr. and Mrs. such and so, please don't do that to the teachers. They don't need it right now. That, that's not, we don't need another set of tests right now. Can we not? If, is this one optional? Because if this one's optional, can we just say no? Mm-hmm. Just say no to that. I know that we used to do this engagement thing once a month where we expect the teachers to show up because the kids are going to show Can we not? Can we just say we're not going to do that and let teachers just go home, let kids just go home to their families and just be home and read a book? Like, can that just be okay? Like, where can we do less? In the things that it's our choice, can we do less? Lobby administration and district leadership for that. We have to focus on doing the really important stuff well, and then everything else is going to have to be, it's, if it's not essential right now, it's, it's got to be back burner. If it's not essential, Chrissy, it's got to go. Mm-hmm. We're going to burn people out. And at this stage of it, I mean, we're in February now. You're going to start to see people dropping like flies. They don't have it to make it to the end of the year. They don't, and we need them to make it to the end. If you want to quit at the end of this school year, by all means, be blessed and go go forward and do the other thing that makes you happy. But as much as we can help people to just kind of stay the course till the end, we'll, the, the rest of it will take care of itself when we get to the end of it. But like, I just, I just can't stand the thought that there's just going to be people just leaving and leaving and leaving because as we get closer to testing, it's just so overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So overwhelming. Yeah. Even on a regular year, even in a good year. On a regular year, it was overwhelming. Now, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So how can people find you online to follow you and to learn more about everything that you share? Um, well, I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a Pinterest uh, page. I have a YouTube channel. Um, but I'm not like, a, yeah, I'm not like a YouTube videoer. Like I want to be cute like that. And I'm like, I don't have time. But I really <laughs> like to see the other folks that put those nice videos together because I'm very impressed by their YouTubing ability. <laughs> right. Um, but I have, a, uh, and a blog too. I have a blog where I write, um, things. Mm-hmm. So, um, my blog is www.tamaravrussell.com and then everywhere else is at Mrs. Russell's room. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I think we talked about so many important things and it's, it's a good time to kind of take stock and look back and think about what have we learned from this experience? Because something good has to come out of it. <laughs> Oh, I think there's going to be a lot more good than we anticipate coming out of it because I believe in the ability of teachers to constantly be able to bring, you know, like beauty from ashes, like teachers recreate things all the time. Every year they try to make things fresh and new and better um, and leave things better than the way they found them. That's the, like, that's the heart in every really amazing teacher. And I know even through this, there will be teachers who we'll see that are doing amazing things for kids and will be better for this when we look back on it. Um, I know you survived um, lots of different hard things um, when you were in the classroom. I mean, I lived through 9-11 as a teacher in Parkland and um, Newton and like all of these different things that I thought, oh my gosh, this is like the, the hardest thing. And, you know, people lobbying for guns in the classroom and things like this. And I was like, I- I'm never going to make it. Right. And then I did. And I learned something from it that made me stronger and better. And all of those moments I'm taking into consideration now that are making me strong for this moment. And I'm like, I can make it because I made it through all of that. I will make it through all of this. It's going to be okay. It's not okay right now. 
but it's going to be okay. What a that was beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. <laughs> if that didn't give you a lot to think about, I don't know, you might need to listen to it again. It gave me a lot to think about for sure. Um, Tamara always has so much insight when it comes to understanding issues at different, the different level conversation, I think was so meaningful. Understanding equity issues in the classroom is one thing. And that's kind of what I was thinking about. But over time, I realized our conversation is really about equity across the system and making sure that, that we are all taking action towards creating the kind of education system that really does give every kid and every teacher what they need to be successful. So I'm so glad that Tamara joined me today. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode with her because it was so, um, so powerful, I think, in listening to her speak today. Um, next week, I am actually going to be chatting about four myths that I, that they're about instructional coaching that I kind of want to dispel. So people have sort of an impression of what instructional coaching is. And a lot of times it is not quite right. <laughs> I know I certainly walked into coaching with an idea of what coaching was and it wasn't really quite right. So I want you to check out episode 53 that's coming out next week. It's four myths about instructional coaching. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.